and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a podcast about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario and try to really overthink what that would be like. We start every episode with a trip to the future, and then we come back to today to talk to experts about what that future would really be like. Before we go to the future this week, I just want to make one super quick announcement, and that is that I am doing a live show, the first ever Flash Forward live event. It's going to be super fun and weird and surprising. So if you're in New York and you want to come see it and hang out, it's on August 15th at 8 p.m. in Manhattan. You can go to flashforwardpod.com slash live for more details. Okay, that's it. Let's go to the future. Let's start today in the year 2051. Tired of spending Sunday mornings in bed, reeling from the fun you had the night before? Want to make the most out of your weekend without losing hours to a hangover? Kick the beer and wine, drop the mixed drink, and enjoy Goldman's instead. Our new formula is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid, and is among the most lovely highs known to man. Add it to anything, iced tea, water, soda, whatever it is you like to drink, and feel that relaxing buzz without the nasty side effects of alcohol. Goldman's, party smarter. Hello, and welcome to the Food and Drug Administration's automated messaging system. For food inquiries, press 1. For drug inquiries, press 2. To apply for or renew a drug sales license, press 1. To hear about the regulations for drug sales licenses in your state, press 2. To hear the suggested doses and side effects for a drug, press 3. To hear the suggested doses and side effects for methadrone, press 1. To hear the suggested doses and side effects for 2M2B, press 2. To hear the suggested doses and side effects for Bromo Dragonfly, press 3. To hear the suggested doses and side effects for O-Desmethyltramadol, press 4. To hear the suggested doses and side effects for Methozetamine, press 5. Methadrone, also sometimes known as Mexi, is a chemical analog of ketamine and PCP and is classified as a hallucinogen. The FDA suggests that methadrone be taken through the nose. Testing suggests that a safe and effective dose of methadrone is 10 to 30 milligrams taken nasally. Do not exceed 100 milligrams. Side effects include increased heart rate, stomach upset, diarrhea, and vomiting. To hear the suggested doses and side effects for a drug, press 3. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you would find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with it. Keeping up for many men of medicine usually requires a bit of extra help. And because they know what a pleasure it is to feel a good, smooth, even pick-me-up, they're particular about the brand of pick-me-ups they choose. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine Doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what do you use, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Bayer. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors use Bayer's Candy than any other pick-me-up. Why not change to Candy in the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your productivity and enjoyment? See what you can do with Candy. 
Okay, so today's future is one in which all drugs are legal. Now, today's episode is another one where I'm going to mostly focus on the United States, just because it's really hard to talk about the entire world's drug perceptions and policies. So sorry to international listeners. We will talk about some non-U.S. examples, but mostly we're going to be talking about America. But let's start this future actually in the past, because a world of legal drugs has existed, right? I mean, drug laws are not as old as the universe or even as old as drugs. As far as I can tell, before 1850, there were no drug laws in the world. That's Mark Kleiman. He's a professor of public policy at NYU, where he focuses on crime and drug policy. The notion that drugs were something that needed to be dealt with by policy is relatively new. Over time, the world got more industrialized. You know, if a farmer's drunk all the time, it just doesn't matter all that much. If industrial workers drunk all the time, it's probably not so good. And more drugs became available to more people. And in the middle of the 19th century, you get, you get two important revolutions. One is on the analytical chemistry side. The isolation of the pure active agents, morphine and cocaine, from opium and coca. And the other on the, the delivery side, the invention of hypodermic syringe. And that was when people started looking at drugs as problems. Public health problems, cultural problems, problems that needed to be addressed by laws. So we started banning drugs, but not all drugs. So let's talk about what's illegal today in the United States and what's not. Let's start with the legal stuff. Alcohol is legal. Tobacco is legal. Caffeine is legal. Pharmaceuticals are legal as long as you have a prescription. And in some states, marijuana is legal, although in the U.S., marijuana is still illegal federally, so it's a little bit weird. In most states, though, marijuana is still illegal, as is cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and a whole bunch of other drugs that I don't need to list for you here, but that you are probably familiar with. Now, you might think that the decisions about which of these drugs are legal and which of them aren't would be based on public health research, that there is a sound scientific case to say that alcohol is less harmful than weed, hence the laws that allow alcohol and prohibit weed. You might think that. You would be wrong, though, because drug policies in the United States mostly are not based on science. They're based on historical accidents and racism. A lot of racism. And if you look at the campaigns behind the illegalization of the currently illegal drugs, every single one of them is fundamentally racist. That's Maya Solovitz. She's a journalist who covers drugs and drug policy, and she's the author of a recent book called Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. You might recognize her from an episode from last season where we talked about empathy machines. Her book is part memoir from her own days of addiction and part science book going through all of the research on drugs and addiction for the past 25 years. We're going to get to that stuff in a second. But first, back to the racism. Cocaine is illegal because it would make black men impervious to bullets, supposedly. Um, would wow. They did. Um, uh, uh, you know, heroin um, is illegal because, um, well, it was originally opium that was made illegal because it would make uh, Chinese men uh, seduce white women. Uh, that was also believed to be an issue with uh, cocaine and black men. Um, marijuana is illegal because it would make uh, white women sleep with uh, Mexicans and so-called entertainers. But if you look in the archives of the New York Times and the other uh, newspapers of the Times, you will find things like Negro cocaine fiends are a new Southern menace, which is an actual headline from the New York Times the year before uh, so-called narcotics became illegal. 
And so uh, this, the system of regulation and prohibition that we have is not based on protecting people. Um, if it was based on protecting people, it would not be the system that we have. In 2010, The Lancet did a study comparing the harms of 20 different drugs. They looked at how each one harmed the individual and how they harmed others. And they found that overall, when you look at both individual harm and outward harm, the most dangerous drug wasn't meth or cocaine or marijuana. It was alcohol. Other studies have ranked alcohol in the top five most harmful drugs used by people, often next to things like heroin and crack. So we have a system in which American drug laws don't necessarily reflect the harms that those drugs can do to a person. And it's also worth taking a moment to point out that the impacts of those drug laws are not minor and they're not fair. Far more people of color spend time in jail for drug offenses than white people, even though studies show over and over that drug use is directly proportional to population. So white people are just as likely to use drugs as anybody else, but they're far less likely to go to prison for it. Here are some statistics. Black Americans are arrested at twice the rate of white Americans for drug crimes. Not only that, but black Americans are more likely to be offered a plea deal that involves prison time than whites for the same crimes. And they're more likely to serve longer sentences than white Americans for the same offense. Here's another way to look at it. Black Americans represent 12% of monthly drug users, but compromise 32% of people arrested for drug possession. And when we're looking at drug arrests, that's a huge number of people. Between 1993 and 2011, there were 30 million arrests for drug crimes in the United States. And 24 million of those were for possession of drugs, not for selling them. And here is where everybody I talk to actually agrees on something about this future. We're going to get into all the ways they disagree in a second, but everybody I talked to agrees about this one thing. Uh, laws against possession of all drugs should be repealed. The first thing to do, and the most obvious thing to do, is decriminalize possession of everything. And it's not just Mark and Maya who think this. I also found a guy who might be one of the last people that you would expect to be for legalizing possession. Hello, this is Tim. Hi, this is Rose. Hi, Rose. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Trying to get in some boating today here. Oh, there you go. Are you on a boat right now? No, I just uh, sitting here waiting. When I get done with you, I'll be going out and get on the boat. My name is Tim Johnson. I'm retired law enforcement from the central Ohio area with 20 years of experience as a uh, senior patrol officer. I retired um, the entire 20 years on the roadway, uh, working with the communities inside and out. Uh, I have worked uh, various assignments um, from all patrol aspects to uh, federal local uh, drug task force units of all sorts, sizes, and shapes, so to say. Um, I've done, I'm a certified hostage negotiator. Um, I'm a uh, field training officer. Uh, so I've done a whole realm of, as far as, you know, in the 20 years I was in, I've kind of done the whole realm. I've done investigations. I've done undercover uh, done, uh, you know, the traffic patrol, um, all the duties and details that go with that. So everything um, pretty much I've been involved in. So Tim is a former cop, a former cop who has arrested a lot of people for drug violations. One of his first arrests ever, actually, was a 19-year-old who was sitting on a bench smoking a joint. So I went ahead and made an arrest uh, for possession of, you know, the one joint, what he had left of it. The 19-year-old did go to court. He did get charged with a criminal conviction. As a result of that, he lost his license for six months. 
as a result of that. He also lost his school loans grants or school grants that he was getting. He was in uh, a second year of a two-year program, and then he lost his part-time job that he had as a result of that. Tim is retired now, and he's a member of a group called LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which is an organization made up of former law enforcement employees who question just how effective drug prohibition really is. Now, nearly everyone who's in LEAP is a former law enforcement employee because you can't actually be associated with LEAP if you are, say, a cop, or they will take away your license. But once he retired, Tim joined LEAP pretty quickly. He says that he just isn't convinced that arresting people for possession is working. We're certainly not, so say, called winning the war on drugs. Um, it's definitely we're losing it. What we're doing isn't working. If we were in any kind of a military conflict for this long, somewhere along the line, somebody would have made a decision and we'd have got out of it. And there's data to support this. Studies have shown that while we've arrested a lot of people for possession, the actual amount of drug abuse in the United States has not gone down. So let's go to this future. And let's start with the future that's halfway between today and the future that we saw at the beginning. Let's think about a future where drugs aren't entirely legal, but possession is decriminalized. Now, some countries have changed their drug laws this way. In 2001, Portugal decriminalized the possession of small amounts of all drugs. Weed, heroin, cocaine, everything. Now, let's be clear that this is not the same thing as legalizing drugs. These drugs are still illegal in Portugal, but possessing them is not a criminal offense, which means that if you get caught with drugs, you are referred to a treatment program and issued a fine. As long as you've got drugs in a small amount and you're not selling them, you are not put in jail and nothing goes on your criminal record, which is a big deal in terms of scholarships and job opportunities and mortgages and all of that stuff. And the results in Portugal have been really positive. Drug use has gone down since 2001, and HIV cases among drug users have also gone down. And Portugal has the second lowest overdose rate in the entire European Union. In Portugal, there are just three overdose deaths for every million citizens. Three for every million. Let's compare that to the United States. According to the CDC, in 2014, there were 147 deaths per million in the United States from drug overdose. Three versus 147. So the people who advocate for this future say that if you decriminalize possession, you will see benefits across the board. And that argument is a sound one. It's backed by plenty of public health data and now historical precedent. But beyond decriminalizing possession, everything else about this future starts to get really murky. How much should you allow people to have? And how should you regulate sellers? And how should we test drugs? And which drugs should we make legal? And does punishment even work to prevent people from doing drugs? And how do we handle those who do get addicted? This is where my guests part ways. And we're going to get to all of that stuff and a world with completely legal drugs when we get back. But first, a quick break. Okay, so, so far in this episode, we've been talking about illicit drugs used to get high. Weed, cocaine, heroin, that kind of stuff. But there's another branch to this argument that I want to go down really quickly, and that's performance-enhancing drugs for sports. Now, bear with me. I know this seems like a big diversion, but I think that this actually sheds some light on the earlier discussion we were having about how to legalize drugs responsibly. Now, today it seems like there's a doping scandal every week. But once again, the idea that taking drugs to enhance your performance is somehow cheating is actually kind of new. The guy 
who won the Olympic marathon in 1904, for example, was drinking a combination of brandy and strychnine because it was thought to be a performance enhancer. So like after winning the marathon, he was found like passed out in the gutter, basically. Oh my God. And, and, you know, people didn't, it wasn't a scandal that he was using that. That's David Epstein. He's a reporter at ProPublica and the author of a book called The Sports Gene. And he says that the idea that using drugs is cheating and morally wrong in sports really started to pop up during the Cold War. And Russians started using... Uh, like testosterone harvested from animals uh, for weightlifters. And then an American doctor who noticed this made the first synthesis of synthetic testosterone. And so I think in some ways it grew out of this sort of Cold War, um, you know, battle on the sports field kind of thing between Russia and the United States, this sort of um, proliferation of performance-enhancing drugs. And then, you know, that led to people going to such extremes that sometimes people died. And so I think it really grew sort of out of some Cold War rivalry. Now, today, we see doping scandals all the time. Maria Sharapova was recently banned from tennis for two years for taking a drug called meldonium. As an aside, uh, it's actually not clear that meldonium is, in fact, performance-enhancing, but it's still banned, so she's still in trouble. That's a whole other story. Lance Armstrong was banned from cycling for life after his doping was revealed to the public. Russian athletes were barred from the Rio Olympics after a widespread doping ring was uncovered. And some people think that all these players being banned, these constant news stories, it's all useless and unnecessary. That we should just legalize performance-enhancing drugs and let everybody just play. And there are three main arguments on this side. The first is that People like to watch athletes that are doping because athletes that are doping can do incredible things. Uh, There's this idea that like, well, let's just see the maximum that we can push the body to. There's a professor um, in Scotland named Andy uh, Maya who argues that this pharmaceutical part of sports is just an expression of human creativity the same way sort of, you know, building cars and car racing is, and we should just embrace that. And, like, if we want to transplant cheetah tendons onto a person, like, let's see what we can do. The second argument is kind of related to that first one, and it's that all of these bans and doping scandals are a downer, and they just make sports less fun to watch. And they want to see sports sort of as an escapism, and they don't like the the negative news. And the third argument is that catching dopers is really, really hard. And even though we hear about doping scandals all the time, most dopers don't actually get caught. There's this constant cat and mouse game between them and the regulators. Take, for example, one of the main tests that is used for doping. It's called the TE ratio test, and it basically tests for two hormones, testosterone and epitestosterone. Now, humans naturally have both of these things, but when you're doping, the ratio between them changes. So without doping, they're usually present in equal amounts. And with doping, epitestosterone stays the same, but testosterone jumps up, so the ratio changes. So all you have to do is test for this ratio, and you can catch dopers, right? Well, it's not that simple. To have your test flagged, you have to go above four to one. So first of all, there's a lot of natural variation, but you have room to dope between one to one and four to one called microdosing, basically using small doses of a drug that are hard to detect before you even trigger that test. Secondly, some people just have a genetic profile that alters the way that they excrete testosterone such that their TE ratio stays the same even when they take testosterone or analogs to testosterone, which are steroids. And so the only people you're probably likely to catch are the ones who happen to have this physiological response where their TE ratio zooms up and stays up for a while after they use certain drugs. So there's a because you don't want to catch 
unfairly catch innocent athletes, there's like a huge cushion built into all drug tests where someone has to get caught basically really badly to be caught. So their ratio has to be really high. So this third argument goes, you're just never going to catch everybody, so why bother? Part of the thought is that the sort of cat and mouse game of scandals is just a distraction from the people, things that people like about sports. And we know that no matter how good testing gets, a huge number of people who are cheating are going to slip through. Uh, so kind of why even do it? But David says that the idea that letting everybody dope is just going to level the playing field because everyone's just taking the same drugs, that's actually not quite right. There's plenty of evidence now that teams are recruiting people who would respond to certain doping drugs better than others. There's something called hematocrit. It's your proportion of your bloodstream that's made up of red blood cells, which carry oxygen, so higher is better. But if you go above 50, they wouldn't let you start a race in cycling. And so the teams would go look for someone who they would say, okay, this guy's a really great cyclist, but he's at 48 hematocrit already. This other guy is only at 40. He's only pretty good, but we can dope him like crazy. He's got tons of room to dope. And so they would actually sometimes pick people who weren't quite as good but had lots of room to dope or look for other ways that people respond to these drugs. So I don't think it makes it an even playing field. So legalizing doping wouldn't necessarily just mean that everyone has the same chances. And it's also not without harm. Some of these drugs can have lasting negative impacts on players' health. And when you're talking about doping, you're not just talking about professional adult athletes. You're talking about kids, too. People think that the, the, the market for performance-enhancing drugs is like pro-athletes. I've spent a lot of time with steroid dealers, and there are not enough pro-athletes to sustain that market. It's, it's mainly people who want to look better or feel tougher or bigger or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, teenagers, especially teenage boys, have plenty of changes in testosterone going on already uh, that they, don't, they shouldn't be supplementing it. So if doping is legal, then it's likely that you simply wouldn't be able to compete without doing it, which is slowly becoming true in sports today. But there are still athletes out there who don't do it. And they're often the ones that are arguing the most against legalizing these drugs. So take Alyssa Montano, an American 400 and 800 runner. In the 2012 Olympics, she came in fifth in the 800 race behind two Russian women who she knew even then were doping. It wasn't until late last year when those runners were finally caught that she could talk publicly about it. And she's been really vocal about this feeling and how she doesn't want to have to play the doping game to be able to keep up and compete. So if we did legalize all performance-enhancing drugs, what do these athletes who don't want to take those risks do? Maybe they create their own leagues. Maybe there's a clean Tour de France and a doping Tour de France. A clean Major League Baseball and a doping one. You know, they have that in bodybuilding. There's, like, clean divisions where I think people are still doping, but doping less. <laughs> so they have, like, the the normal one and the clean one separately. Can you tell the difference between the two? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. So I looked up images of bodybuilders and the natural bodybuilders versus the other leagues, and you really can tell. I'll post pictures online, so you should go look at them. So we could do that. We could just split sports into leagues that do and don't allow doping. But here is my question. We might talk a big game about wanting pure athleticism, about cheating and doping and wanting to see what the human body can really do without steroids or artificial help. But do we really want that? If we let the market decide and have people vote with their dollars and viewership between an NFL where everybody is clean and an NFL where everybody is doping— are people really going to choose the clean league? I mean, I just, I don't think so. 
In the end, a lot of this comes down to what you think the point of sports is. When I was reporting on doping, I would read a lot of philosophers to try to figure out what sport was about. And this one I love named Bernard Suits tried to summarize sports and games in one sentence, and he called it the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles. The voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles. So the question is, are those anti-doping rules part of the unnecessary obstacles that athletes should voluntarily accept? Or not? Now, one of the reasons I wanted to include this kind of diversion into sports and doping in this episode about legalizing drugs is because in a lot of ways, sports can kind of help us have conversations about health and ethics that are kind of harder to have when it comes to drugs like heroin and cocaine. Because a lot of us have these deeply rooted biases about what a heroin user or a cocaine user is like. But we can sort of use this sports stuff to guide us in these conversations without getting stuck in the debate about whether drug abusers are evil or just sick or something else. So in sports, we can say things like, let's just legalize everything and then try to regulate it to keep people safe and healthy. But that argument is extremely radical when it comes to other drugs. Now, to be fair, steroids and performance-enhancing drugs are not as dangerous or addictive as other recreational drugs like heroin or opioids. But if we can talk about regulating an open market of steroids, why can't we talk about regulating an open market of heroin? Let's try. Let's go to this world of completely legal drugs. What happens? A lot more people would find themselves in the grip of substance use disorder. So if we simply let everybody loose to do and make and sell whatever drugs they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, that's probably not a good idea. I mean, some diehard libertarians are for this. They think that everybody has the personal right to destroy themselves if they so choose. But I think that most people in general are in favor of regulating things that cause death and destruction. Except for guns, I guess, but that's a topic for a different future. So assuming that we don't want to just let everybody do heroin willy-nilly, how do we legalize drugs without complete chaos and death? You are never going to have no harm. You want to make the policy that minimizes harm. People are going to get their hands on things. We can either make it easier or harder. So the first step in our post-drug law world is probably research. In fact, we should probably do the research before we repeal all the drug laws, but we should probably do some research into what works and what doesn't, what safe doses are and what they aren't, and what the best drugs are, really. You know, we need to empirically test the best levels of regulation for various things. But that certainly doesn't mean that, like, insanely dangerous drugs that, uh, you know, the lethal dose is like, you know, one milligram away from the effective dose should be legal. But nobody would want those drugs if they had better alternatives. The future of drugs is really better drugs. And along with that testing, some people would like to see some training for the folks that are selling these drugs so that it's not about selling the most at the highest profit, but actually taking care of the customer's needs and health. I certainly require the people doing their actual retail selling to have both training, helping people manage their habits, and a professional responsibility to serve the interest of the consumer and not the interest of the boss. So in the ideal version of this future, you can go into a licensed store, speak with a professional who understands the pharmacology, who knows what they're selling you, who can guide you in your purchasing, and who isn't being pressured by profit margins. Because really, people should not be getting in trouble in relation to dose of something that they know the actual dose of. 
Now, some marijuana dispensaries have people with this kind of expertise, but not all of them. And these places could also take a page out of gambling's playbook by letting people pick a preset limit for themselves before they start buying and cut themselves off when they feel like they might be losing control. You know, if you're going to go to the casinos, you have to establish your personal monthly loss limit. And the casinos are required to enforce that. Now, that seems to be a policy that's pretty respectful of personal liberties. It's like a set an infinite target if I wanted it. My guess is that most people, when asked, well, how much pot do you want to smoke every month, would give a finite number, not an infinite number. And then if they set that as a quota and that were enforceable, it would interfere with their, their behavior only if their behavior was behavior that they had said in advance they didn't want to, want to engage in. That doesn't strike me as, a, as an assault on liberty. But there's another way that this legal high future could get very dark very quickly. And that is thanks to our old friend, or foe, capitalism. Where it becomes a complicated problem is because of the hypercapitalism that we have at the moment. Because you really kind of don't want Philip Morris crack. Like, that would really be a bad <laughs> idea. Um, Just imagine, you know, somebody who works for McDonald's or Nabisco in the lab. And you say, look, all of the drugs in the world are legal, including the one you just have to invent. And your job is to sell as much as you can. Imagine the solution to that guy's problem, and you can imagine the world. So just like there is an FDA to make sure that pharmaceutical drugs aren't extremely dangerous, there would probably need to be a way to keep drug manufacturers from making drugs that are poisonous or super addictive. And in fact, the idea of an FDA for recreational drugs has been attempted in New Zealand in 2013. So basically, they had, New Zealand had a lot of legal highs being sold there in part because it's like a very isolated country and, you know, somebody put it, the cocaine boat doesn't stop here. Um, so <laughs> they had lots of, um, you know, there was a big market for this and, and there was this like crazy rock and roll guy. His name is Matt Bowden who was really into drugs, and he decided that um, his friends and himself were having sort of too many problems with amphetamines. Um, let's see if we can make something that is uh, less harmful. And he looked through the pharmaceutical literature and found a failed antidepressant called BZP and started selling thousands of them. Um, and this was because there, it was not illegal. So he orders these drugs from labs in India and China, and he starts selling them. But so do other people. And those other people are less careful about how potent their drugs were. So what happened is he managed to, with the support of the industry um, and his own work in the industry, um, get through Parliament a law that was basically going to uh, create a process for legally testing these things and then... Um, you know, allowing the companies to do essentially clinical trials. And they didn't have to be effective. Like, the government didn't care if the stuff actually got you high or not. It just had to be safe. Um, so you didn't have to do clinical trials, like, looking for, like, how high does this get you? Obviously, the industry would prefer that it does actually get you somewhat high because just a placebo is not going to sell all that well in the long run. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, so they, and they came up with these scales related to harmfulness and, you know, how addictive is it and, you know, how, what does it, does it damage your organs? Like, can it cause overdose? These kinds of things. Um, and so they 
created this whole regulatory system and they created local stores that were going to sell, you know, licensing for local stores and this whole big deal. So Matt Bowden, noted drug dealer, managed to get this law passed that created the world's first set of regulations for clinical testing and approval of recreational drugs, which is kind of incredible. But then things kind of fell apart. Then, you know, a new party came in and uh, or a new government came in and they uh, just went the opposite direction. The law was passed in 2013, but in 2014, New Zealand passed a revision to the law. And that revision banned all of the substances that were on sale at the time. And it also prohibited the use of animal testing in New Zealand for trials on new ones, which basically totally blew up this whole FDA for recreational drugs idea. Um, and this is like sort of characteristic of New Zealand uh, policies, um, where it's a small country um, and it sort of swings, um, you know, you can have these swings back and forth like this. And actually, it's characteristic of drug policy more generally, where it does tend to swing from one extreme to the other. And Matt, the guy who had spearheaded this whole thing, couldn't afford to do animal testing overseas. The guy, Matt Bowden, um, who was in the industry, basically got bankrupted by the collapse of this. So nobody has the money to put anything through clinical trials and the illegal people don't have the inclination. So the FDA for drugs in New Zealand never really happened, and there's been nothing like it since. But if we are in this future of legalized drugs, we would probably want something like that to protect consumers. So these questions will really have to do with the individual drug. Um, You know, I really don't think, like, you know, Walmart should be selling opioids over the counter. Um, But, you know, um, should you be able to go to a clinic and get opioids um, for um, mental reasons as well as physical ones. Um, You know, these are all issues like we just haven't grappled with them as a society. We haven't thought rationally about, okay, what will we do? So perhaps the question about this future isn't, will we have totally legal drugs? Rather, will we have a calm and rational discussion of drug policy in general? Is that possible? I don't know. You remember, you can reach us at CopsayLegalizedDrugs.com. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Rose. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. So there's a lot we didn't talk about in this episode, stuff like the prescription drug epidemic and the ways that legal drugs might change the drug-related violence going on in places like Mexico and Venezuela. If you go to flashforwardpod.com, I'm going to post some good links to stuff that touches on those questions, as well as some very intense bodybuilding photos. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. The break music this week is by Fields, Ohio. Special thanks this week to Stacey Marie Ishmael, Tamara Krinsky, Elizabeth McKinstry, Matt Weller, Stephen Grenad, Casey Broughton, Kevin Wojtasek, Navneet Mathur, and Ari Baranowski. If you want to suggest a future that I should take on, send me a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas, so keep them coming. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. You can go to flashforwardpod.com slash donate to learn about all the ways that you can give to the show, including one-time or recurring donations. But if that's not in the cards for you, I totally understand, and you can still help. 
You can go to iTunes and leave us a nice review or just tell your friends about us. That actually does make a difference. That's all for this future. Come back next week and we'll travel to a new one.